welcome to Walkley Talks. I'm Claire Fletcher from The Walkleys. Today's podcast comes from an event the Walkley Foundation hosted in partnership with the New York Times Australia Bureau, with New York Times analytics whiz James Robinson. The talk was recorded live at the State Library of New South Wales on March 20, 2018. James is the Director of Global Analytics at the New York Times, where he's responsible for helping the Times better understand its audiences around the world. In this episode, James discusses how analytics can be used to help measure success, better understand audiences, and build new relationships with readers. James is in discussion with Peter Frey, who's Professor of Journalism Practice at UTS. Enjoy! Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome. It's an early start. I'd like to acknowledge that we are all on Aboriginal land and pay my respects to the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and their elders past and present. For those whom I haven't met, I'm Louisa Graham, Chief Executive of the Walkley Foundation. And we're delighted to be working with the New York Times and Adam Kershaw's here in the audience. Thank you, Adam, to present this morning's discussion. And given this fantastic crowd, it's clearly a topic that we're all interested in. The Walkley Foundation is at the heart of the Australian media. We are independent and work with every media organisation to foster a collaborative and vibrant industry. And over recent years, we have welcomed a number of international news outlets to Australia, including BuzzFeed, The Daily Mail, The Guardian, and now The New York Times. Diversity and greater access to international content are a vital part of audience engagement and restoring trust in media, as well as fostering innovation and a healthy sense of competition. It's never been a more important time to find new ways to support quality journalism, which is why this year at the Walkley Foundation, we are leveraging our reputation and position at the heart of the industry to build a broad funding base to scale up efforts to contribute directly to building sustainable, thriving and trusted media. We'll be announcing more details soon, but what I can say for now is that our tax-deductible status means that we can seek philanthropic support for programs that will give back to journalism. We're working to make the bonds of trust between the media and the public even stronger, and we're hoping you can help us in that endeavour. You can find out more about the Walkleys and what we do on our website, walkleys.com. While you're there, you might like to make a donation. However small, it's tax deductible, and your support helps us to host free events like this one this morning. And even if it's only $10 to compensate for the breakfast, it all helps. We have another fantastic one for you coming up on May the 11th. At this event, we're bringing together Australia's best storytellers for a night devoted to fundraising for great Australian journalism. This will be called our inaugural Walkley Fun for Journalism Dinner. And we have a great lineup of journalists moderated by Kerry O'Brien, including Kate Garrity, Fran Kelly, Steve Pennells, and Louise Milligan. And there are all sorts of fantastic option prizes that you can bid on at that event, including some of our Walkley winning photographs. I think you can uh, uh, bid for a dinner with Kate McClymouth, Fran Kelly, and Peter Van Onselen, or you can have a podcast, star on a podcast with um, Malcolm Farr and Dennis Atkins. So it'll be a great night. And, and flyers are available uh, on the way out as you leave. And if you have enjoyed today's conversation, make sure that you do sign up for our newsletter so that you uh, get to see more of these events. Now, I'm going to hand you over to James and Peter. 
James Robinson is the Director of Global Analytics at the New York Times, where he is responsible for helping the Times better understand its audiences around the world. James has spent over 10 years in a variety of analytical roles at the Times, first leading the web analytics team during the implementation of its digital subscription model, and then pioneering the use of audience insights in the newsroom as the company's first director of news analytics. He speaks frequently on media analytics and is an adjunct professor at Columbia University School of Journalism. So there's a lot of analytics there. And Peter Frey is the professor of journalism practice at UTS, and he is one of the country's most experienced and innovative media professionals. Former editor and editor-chief of the Sydney Morning Herald, the Sun Herald, the Canberra Times, the Sunday Age, Frey has lived the reality of the digital revolution that's forever changed the way journalism is practised, received and distributed. So please welcome James and Peter. Thank you. Very kind introduction. Um, I'm, I'm going to start off with a confession. And the confession is that James is an Australian Tell us why that is the case, James. My mother's an Australian. She's uh, from Sydney. So, yes. And there's another part of your deep, dark secret that's going to ruin the lovely intro. My dad's a Kiwi. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> applause. That was an applause oh. line. No. <laughs> uh, but you're really a Brooklyn Australian. I am. I put on this accent, so I feel at home in Brooklyn. Yes. Yeah. And it's nice <laughs> to know that James's mom is coming down to see what he's doing here. And we conceived of this idea that we should all, there's a series where we all ask our mothers to describe what we do. <laughs> and I think it would be a really great way of uh, opening up this conversation, because what the hell do you do? That's a very good question. So my job at the Times is to help um, people in our company understand our audiences better. And we do that through a variety of ways, but the ways that I do it is by looking at uh, behavioral data. So um, looking at people, how, how people use our products, uh, both on the web and in apps, to help understand... Um, what it is they want from the Times and help deliver a better, more relevant, more compelling product for them. So analytics is really two, there's two parts to analytics, just to drill down into this. Yeah, so most people think of analytics as a thing, but it's actually two different things, two types of analytics that, that I do. One is analytics for measurement, which is really um, measuring how effective something is. So it's, it's evaluative. Um, and the, the question that I get frequently is, is, how did my story do? That's like the biggest question I get. But the more interesting part of analytics, uh, I find, is uh, analytics for insight. Uh, which is really understanding, you know, how the system works, how readers think, why things are happening. Uh, and it goes beyond just putting a score on things to actually understand, you know, how people are interacting with our products, what they care about, and how we can serve them better. So we're going to get to the word Facebook very soon. So let's go back to analytics quickly. <laughs> just so measurement and insight, why are they increasingly important to people in our game? I think that question that, that we would get, um, frequently when I was first in the newsroom of how did my story do is, is really critical to understanding that because I think what's happening on the news side is people are trying to evaluate whether what they're doing online is, is worth it, right? So we have a brand new world where everything is changing and suddenly it's critical for editors and journalists and on the business side to understand, you know, how people are interacting with their products in new ways. And there's been one fundamental shift, I think, in the digital era that was different from what came before, which is in the past, the Times was a monolithic product, a newspaper, Right, a single unbreakable newspaper. Sure, you could rip things out, but, but generally it was one entity going to a monolithic audience, which was our readership and our subscribers. And the big change that's happened over the past 10 years is suddenly you now have a disaggregated product in which every article can find its own audience going to a disaggregated audience. And one of the intriguing opportunities now in the digital age is that we can find new audiences. The Times can come to Australia 
uh, and think about what Australians are interested in and be able to serve them directly. And so that really argues for much more of a concept of audience segmentation. Who are the types of readers that I'm trying to reach? When I write a story, what is that story for? Who is that story for? Um, what do they care about? And how can I tell it in a way which is really resonant? So is that revealing kind of an essential truth of the digital age, which is, in essence, the mass audience is kind of dead or dying? Well, I hope not, because we do rely on a mass audience for our well-being. We have a subscriber base of millions of people who, who actually pay for the Times. And so in that respect, a mass audience is really important, right? You want to create a product which is compelling enough to all these people that they feel that it's worth paying for. And I think we do. But I think what's interesting about you know, the fact that we have these different audiences now is we can actually look for growth in some of these audience segments. We can actually think about what an Australian audience would like and craft our report for that audience as well. Not necessarily doing something completely different. What are we finding out about Australian audiences from your work? And in relation to the times, but maybe in a broader sense. Well, first, in a broader sense. First of all, that there is a huge audience for our journalism here. I mean, I think the Times may be a new brand to a lot of Australians, but I think what the Times stands for is is not new. You know, quality journalism, news that you can trust, interesting, relevant. I think Australians, in some ways, are more interested in U.S. domestic politics than some Americans are. Certainly, with certain key topics like Trump and guns, and and we find that. Uh, definitely. Um, but so, so, sort of what we see is our existing audience in Australia are people who already have a connection to the United States, some connection, you know, either a family member or they live there or um, they spent time there. And one of the things that we're trying to figure out is for people who may not be familiar with the Times, how do we actually introduce an, audience, an Australian audience to them and make sure that we're serving their needs properly? So let's, let's, let's try and be a bit more specific. So data, how is data or and or, if you like, look, looking at it in a more benign way, knowing your audience changing journalism or is it changing journalism yeah i'll give you a, sp a specific example so, so we had a, a weekly video game review that we would write in the times every week uh, every friday and it was actually on the front page of the art section and it was a review of the latest video game and we saw that the readership was not quite what we wanted it to be and we were a little disappointed by that so rather than you know completely kill uh, the column we decided to talk to our readers so we actually invited loyal New York Times readers who actually work for us, developers in our uh, tech group who are actually avid gamers, and we sat them down and said, um, tell us about these reviews. Do you read these reviews? And none of them raised their hand. And we said, well, that's a problem. If you have people at the Times who are not reading the Times, who are passionate about a certain thing, well, that's kind of the lowest hanging fruit, right? So we invited them in for the cost of two pizzas. We spent 45 minutes with them, and, and we had a wealth of insights about you know, what we could be doing better in our video game coverage. For instance, the byline a journalist who was well-known to the editors there was completely unknown to the people reading the piece. And there was no sense of authority, like they knew what they were talking about. So instead of saying, by John Smith, you should say, by John Smith, level six wizard, and, and what have you. But kind of the most interesting insight, and this is what's great about my job, is you're often surprised by things, is that uh, the artwork that we were using um, for, for the piece was actually a detriment. Um, we were using screen grabs that were um, provided by the video game companies. And if you're a gamer, you're very suspicious of video game companies. And in fact, a lot of the, the reviews that are out there already um, are perceived as biased because there's a really tight relationship between the, the game producers and the game journalists. And so by having a piece of artwork that said courtesy of Rockstar Games, that was actually a big problem for us because it sort of, you know, you have an ulterior motive. So what you're talking about there with the gaming example is something that could have happened 10, 15, 20 years ago prior to the concept of data. Right analytics. So why, what made the data analytics, you know, what did it bring to the party? 
Well, I think the, I think the the initiative was because we actually knew what people were reading, right? We don't know what people are reading in the newspaper uh, every day, right? So we actually knew the readership of this, and we were trying to figure out how we could grow that readership. And I think, generally speaking, the way analytics has been done in media has been all about ranking things, right? The top ten list, which things are doing the best. And so there's this argument that analytics will corrupt journalism because you're not going to write about a certain topic, like you know Yemen, because it will never make the top ten list. And that's something that we fight very hard at the Times. We know that there are topics that are important that we're going to cover, whether they're not they get a million uh, visitors or not. And the way that we do that is we, we try to, everything that we write, we try to model out who the audience for that is. So we try to look at our, the data that we have and say, are there a group of users who are interested in Yemen? Mm-hmm. And then the success of that article is not, does it get millions and millions of people? But, but of the people who are interested in it, are they actually reading it? And we started modeling that sort of stuff out. It's funny the way it works at the Times because somebody will say, how did, how did your story do? And you'll give them a number. That's all we have. And that's terribly dissatisfying or, or unsatisfying. And in fact, at the Times, the way it lines up is um, it's like a salary scale. So if somebody comes to you and says, well, how did my story do? And you say, well, got 20,000 visits. They're like, I couldn't live on $20,000 a year. And it's like the instinctive reaction to that number. But if you say I got 150,000, they're like, oh, well, that's, that sounds healthy. Like, I could live on that. And if, if you got a million visits, then I'm, I'm a millionaire, right? Like, and, and the party started. But, but those things don't really do justice to, to the nuances of, of audiences. Well, just sticking in the newsroom for a second, in a sense, what that is is a a kind of cultural change, right? I mean, journalists are, a lot of journalists become journalists because they're scared of numbers. Yes. I know I was. Yeah, there's a study I think that was done by Columbia University where they, they asked incoming journalism students to take an arithmetic test and they performed more poorly than Japanese sixth graders. Uh, <laughs> but I think that's changing. I think that's... That, yeah. yeah, well, so no, my, I guess my point is that the data, is the data analytics you're delivering engineering a cultural change? The, yes. A more subtle... Idea of audience, a more subtle idea of what is a, a successful story. Well, generally speaking, I think uh, fluency in numbers is becoming seen as critical in journalism, more broadly than just analytics. I think one of the greatest strengths that the Times has, we've been at the forefront of that. Uh, we have a wonderful feature, uh, a desk called the Upshot, where we do a lot of reporting driven on numbers and data, and um, that sort of fluency is not just evident on that desk, but is permeating all the other desks as well. So that's that's sort of a broader trend. But I try to n- not make my work about numbers. I, I don't see my my role as numbers um, at all. I have no background in numbers, actually. I don't think I even took a math class since high school. My job is really to help understand audiences. And, and I think what happens is there tends to be a disconnect between analysts and journalists when, when analysts forget that it's about people and they communicate numbers rather than, than, than audiences. I was given three pieces of advice when I first moved down to the newsroom. One is that use short, complete sentences. All journalists have ADD and make it about real people. And the third thing is something that I've really taken to heart is can we communicate insights about real people rather than just throwing numbers at folks? You seem and to be doing okay way. on the ADD thing as well, actually. <laughs> uh, where do you sit in the uh, newsroom? I actually sit quite close to the main do- news desk. I work on the global team. So it's a cross-disciplinary team with um, representatives from different parts of the organization. And so I sit with journalists. I sit with business side people. I sit with marketers. Okay. I sit with um, product people and developers. And we have a small team which is tasked with bringing global perspectives to the whole newsroom. So part of my job is coming down to the offices like in Australia and in London and, and talking to the journalists here. But a large part of what we do is getting our entire news organization to think global. And so that's why we sit with, with, with the... Uh, so d- tell me, system. when you look at your screen or screens, is there sort of like a map of Australia going, burp, burp, that's going off, that kangaroo story? You know? I, I have, mean, how does that, how does that I have work? a calendar with Australia on it. And there's kangaroos on the calendar. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but how does that work? How does, that, how, does that, how does the insight flow and how do you translate those insights out into the newsroom and back to the team here? Right, there's a, there's a couple of different ways we do that. So 
One is answering questions. I'll talk about that in a second. But also one is just paying attention. So I think it was Woody Allen who said 80% of life is just showing up. Um, we, I try to show up every morning, and not just physically. I have a whole bunch of dashboards that we've built that actually tells me you know, how the numbers are moving in each market uh, and whether, um, as analysts, we look for patterns and anomalies. So we look for things that are more than we expected or lower than we expected, and we have a whole bunch of sophisticated tools that allow us to tease out why those numbers might be moving uh, in a certain market. So that's just checking in every day. And then we communicate that to the team. Because we sit close to each other, it's pretty easy to do. Um, but we also use tools like Slack um, and email and telephone and water cooler. To, you know, but then, then the other way in which we sort of start our work is through questions. We get a whole bunch of questions. Questions from? From everybody. Right. Constantly. From reporting, from staff. Yeah, yeah from editors, reporters, marketers, right. what have you. Uh, maybe they've noticed something or they have, a, they have something that they're interested in or less and less they're actually looking to use analytics. We call this analytics as a blunt inter- instrument. They're trying to look for a big number to hit somebody else over the head with. Um, but we're trying to manage that down. But it's interesting. We get all these um, questions that are coming in. We try our best to answer them. But I find that the most important or interesting questions that we get are what I call implicit questions. So the questions that aren't asked because people are too shy to ask. Give us an example. Uh, so, well, I'll, I'll give you some characteristics of these questions. They, uh, they uh, assert themselves as assumptions, hypotheses, habits. Whenever somebody pulls out their phone when you're talking about a mobile site and they pull out their phone and say, well, this is what I do, they're actually asking a question. They're saying, I don't really know how the users use it, so I'm going to use my own experience. And that's really an interesting question. And then habits as well. So way back when I was working on the news desk, I was talking to a homepage producer, and he said, well, we, keep, we try to keep the homepage refreshed every two hours. And I said, well, why? And he said, well, that's what our users want. And I wasn't familiar with that research, so we actually went in and we did a deep dive on that, and we tried to figure out whether that was actually the optimal time for refreshing, and we, it resulted in a whole bunch of insights that we weren't looking for before. And so part of what I do is to try to deliver surprise, right? So if I'm doing my job right, we're communicating things that people didn't know before. And so you take those questions. They may not be explicitly asked. They may be implicitly asked. You observe them, and they deliver an insight, which somebody says, oh, aha, I didn't thought about the world that way. Maybe I'll change what I do slightly to do that. But, but uh, the last thing that I'll say with that filibustering, we don't lead with analytics at the Times. So... The most important resource that we have is our editorial judgment, and we take that first and foremost, and we use analytics and data and insights as sort of a supplement to that. It's almost like shining a torch in a dark room almost, right? So gut feeling and or years of experience, whatever you want to call it, is paramount. It's still important, sure. Tell us about data, because data is a very amorphous word. It gets used a lot, and it's being used a lot in the last couple of days in a scary way. What's the, what's the Times' view about personal data and use of it? So I have a personal rule that if it's creepy, I don't do it. But that's, that's your own rule. That's, that's our rule. Okay. I, it's not a formal rule, but it's, it's a pretty good. I mean, we don't want to go to lawyers to talk about things because if we're talking to lawyers, we're doing something that we're uncomfortable with and we don't want to do it. So that's just the ethos, I would say, at the Times. We have a privacy policy. We're very strict about how we use data. We don't have access to any personal identifiable information. I couldn't look myself up in the database if I wanted to. Um, so everything's anonymized by the time it gets to me. Uh, we don't share data with third parties generally. And data is not our product. It's a product we use as a means. It's, it's a uh, medium that we use as a means to an end. Whereas for the Facebooks of the world, that is their business. Yeah. Data is their, is their product. That's an important distinction to yeah. make, isn't it? And is it also an important distinction to understand? And are you concerned that debate, like the current story with Cambridge Analytica and Facebook, blurs those boundaries, blurs that understanding? Uh, amongst who? Populous. The population. People yeah, go, I oh, think, data, it's scary. It's, uh, well, I think, yeah. They're right to be scared. I mean, there was, we ran a story a few years ago about how 
I think Target was using data to predict whether somebody was pregnant before they actually knew or had told family members that they were pregnant, which creeps me out. I don't know how I would use that data. I wouldn't want to use it. Like, I wouldn't want to know that. I mean, you, there's an interesting thought experiment to be had. It's like, if I knew everything about everybody, what would I do with it? And, oh. and I, don't even, I don't even want You'd to go You'd sell more newspapers. <laughs> I'm not sure. We might get out of the newspaper business. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, you might. You might. <laughs> but that's not something we seek out at, at the times okay. at all. Yeah. All right, well, I'm, I'm, let's go back to your experiences of the New York Times in Australia. And how do we compare? I mean, this is a you know, very uh, in-house kind of question, but how, do we, how does the Australian experience compare with other international uh, efforts of the Times? A lot sunnier. Yeah. Uh, beach yeah. is nice. Yeah. <laughs> do you, I know. What do you mean? Have you seen the tan on your chief correspondent? That's incredible, <laughs> isn't it? I mean, like mahogany. Uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> what else? I'm, I'm trying to find some... What are we... You know, let's talk about us for a second. What are you, what are you finding out really about us? Like I said, I'm, I, think I, I think I've alluded to that earlier, that Australians mm. are you know, fascinated by the States and what's happening in the States. They tend to turn to us for that because we are the New York Times, but we also cover the world. And I think Australians are curious about the world and they may not know that we have the lines of coverage that we do. Mm. Again, it's a challenge to introduce it. They, behave, they wake up at different times than America does which throws off all of our, all of our analyses because we have to correct for that. I think it's something that we're still trying to find out, and I think that I'm one part of that puzzle, but I also think that we're not the complete picture. I think Damien, our correspondent, has been wonderful about you know, reaching out directly to Australian readers and talking to them directly, and that's, that's in my mind, the best way to understand people is to talk to them. Uh, and so we can provide some you know, insights here and there about things that we're seeing in terms of large-scale behavior, but at the very end of the day, it's just great to get out and talk to your audience and learn from them directly. Yeah. And that's something that we've done a lot of, both in our, our newsletter, Australia Letter, which I would encourage you to subscribe to because it's brilliant. And then we also have a Facebook group for subscribers where we have a very healthy conversation happening uh, constantly. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting thing you mentioned, newsletters, because the newsletters are emerging or have been over a few years now as a very important tool in that relationship. Yes. What other tools do you see as, you know, as the bridge between, say, the newsroom and the audience, other than simply reading, you know, understanding what people clicked on? I mean, it's, it's a little outside my responsibility because I'm not the editor in charge of the Bureau and I defer to him on that, but I think storytelling comes first. Right. Uh, finding things that are interesting, not boring, that spark curiosity. Finding new ways to tell those stories using different perspectives. I think the Times does bring a different perspective to the Australian media market. Mm. Uh, Facebook is a healthy platform to reach people, although creepy, I guess, sometimes, right? Healthy but creepy. Healthy but creepy, Ooh. yeah. Could be a new um, slogan. But for us, you know, we're not, we're not using it to, gr to grab data about you. We're doing that yeah. As a means of communication, we'll go where the readers are. You know, the Times is always first on trying out new things. It was one of the most surprising things to me working there and having worked there over the 13 years. You would expect the Times to be a very conservative, straight-laced organization. It's really not. Like, if something new comes up, we'll we'll jump right on it. I think we had a journalist who was interested in Twitter when it first came out, and, and you know, senior editors listened. Mm. Tell us about this thing. Snapchat. We have a healthy Snapchat presence. If you were not the New York Times, because not every media organization in the world has the same budget yeah. as the New York Times. What advice would you give in terms of setting out to understand audience? Just strictly in terms of analytics, yeah. I, think, I think there's a couple of easy things you can do, even if you're just using Google Analytics. I think generally we tend to think about analytics in one dimension. You know, what is the most read story? What is the second most read story? And I find it very useful to think about things in two dimensions. So, for instance, if you wanted to analyze what Australians are interested in reading, you would certainly count the number of Australian readers for each story, but you might actually on the x-axis look at the number of American readers for each story mm. and then do a ratio there and see if there are any articles which over-index for one or the other and that will reveal insights. And so just by adding just a little bit more data, not too much data, mm. and then trying to aspire to, to use ratios instead of absolutes, there's a lot of insights that we've on there. 
Okay, good advice. That's good a very advice. geeky answer. Well, it's so. a good geeky Geeks. answer, though. Yeah. And you're a bit geeky, let's face it. <laughs> Just a little bit. Fantastic. Over to you, Louisa. Yes, great discussion, and I think uh, James knows a lot more than we do, and we need to know a lot more. So I'd like to invite uh, Damien Cave, who's the New York Times Australian Bureau Chief, up to thank our speakers and say a few words. James and I worked together for a long time before we were both part of Global. The thing that I remember most about James was this wonderful panda video that was always in the back of his office that brought me great peace when I would sit down and talk analytics with him. But I just wanted to say thank you to all of you guys for coming to listen to James. I know I learned a lot from him. One question that I wanted to answer that seemed to have come up a little bit, which you sidestepped a little bit, was just what access we have to information. You know, internally we have built tools that give me as someone who's trying to lead a new project and build an audience, a lot of access to information. I know who's well, my readers or subscribers when they're not. I know generally what country they come from. I know not just the promotion that we put on a story, but when a story pops into other promotional areas on Facebook or in social. And all of these are all some of the levers and tools that we use to try and figure out how to run this experiment, which is our Australia Bureau. I just want to thank Peter, James, you guys have been great. Peter's been a huge help to me in all kinds of different ways. The journalism community here is one that we feel very proud to be part of, and so we're open to conversation, we're open to discussion, criticism too, I get plenty of that as well. But you know, this is really meant to be an incubator, not just for the New York Times, but for great journalism. And so it only works when we all work together. And so organizations like this are great. So thank you to the Walkleys, thank you to you guys, and thanks to all of you. And come read us, come talk to us, we're here. Thanks. You've been listening to the Walkley Talks podcast with me, Claire Fletcher. Sign up for our newsletter at walkleys.com slash subscribe and you'll be the first to learn about new episodes as well as our events and other opportunities. Find us on iTunes or your favourite podcast app and please rate us there. This podcast is produced by Miles Holbrook Walk and with help from the 2SER studios in Sydney, Australia. Till next time.